On this episode of History Worth Saving, we're going deep into space, talking about a problem that many of us don't even realize exists. Uh, but it is a problem, and it's one that uh, Professor Franz von Vanderdunk has been studying for years. He is the international expert on space law and policy, and he joins us now from his home in the Netherlands. And a lot of you are wondering what the American tie to this is. Well, history we're saving while we do tell great American stories and we focus on that. We take guests from all over the world. But Professor Vanderdunk is actually a professor at the Nebraska College of Law. So there's the tie. Professor, thanks for being here. We appreciate your, your time. My pleasure. Appreciate you coming on. This problem of laws in space, we, we really don't have any uh, that are that are codified and really exist in the manner that direct countries and direct action. And we're at a point right now where we have, since the dawn of the space era and space age, we've been sending stuff up there uh, without much concern as to what happens to it once it's there. So now we have all this debris and junk in space. Uh, and this is just one problem uh, that we're facing within why we need laws. But let's talk a little bit about that, because a lot of people don't realize it's a problem and it is a huge problem. Oh, absolutely. And at the same time, uh, we have uh, basically from very early on in the space age, we have, we as humanity, as humankind, have started to develop at least some rules of the road. Uh, some of them, most importantly, have already been codified in the 1967 uh, Outer Space Treaty. This is the colloquial name. The full name is much longer than that. But 1967, so that's, that's more than 50 years ago. Um, but the problem is they are really very broad rules of the road. And when it comes, for example, to the problem you, you want to focus on right now, space junk, back in 1967, nobody was really concerned about space junk. Uh, the main concern at the time was that you had the two superpowers locked in a cold war, the then Soviet Union and the United States. And the main concern was let's not try, let's try not to allow space to become a battleground between those two superpowers. Let's not uh, allow uh, um, this cold war to turn into a hot war and then take space into its uh, stride. So the, the few rules and principles that were in in the 1967 treaty, we're very much focused on, on maintaining a level of international peace and security. And I must say, in that sense, it has been quite successful. It's not, of course, just the existence of the, of the treaty. But coming back to your other point, again, in 1967, nobody was really concerned about space debris or space junk. So there is nothing really explicit or, or in great detail in that treaty, which helps us now develop rules of the road for that particular problem. Let's paint the picture here just a little bit, because there's a lot going on right now. We're hearing about some countries doing tests uh, where they actually shoot down a satellite. Um, one of those tests, if I read this correctly, might have happened uh, at the very beginning of the uh, the conflict and the war that we see going on right now in Ukraine. And it 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 took a position that uh, they were going to do this test, this certain nation was going to do a test. Um, they took out this satellite, this old satellite of theirs, um, but it created a debris cloud. And I'll let you explain the rest. 
Yeah, well, that's the baseline. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that it's not just one country because then it would be relatively easy for the rest of the world to put that one country in the corner of the bad guys and, and at least create a political opposition globally that this is not something to be done. Unfortunately, all of the main superpowers have, have, have done these things. Uh, the United States, Russia, China, India has recently joined the club. So part of the problem is that the current worsening geopolitical situation sort of stimulates new countries, because in particular India was relatively new in this field, to show that they are up there with the big boys as well. And, and, and this target practicing in outer space is basically sh showing your own muscle. And, and you're absolutely right, it aggravates the problem because it is clear that even if it's your own satellite with which you can technically speaking do what you want if you create space debris that creates a risk for everyone else too and at um, some point you you have to reposition your own satellite so if absolutely. you're if you're watching a situation develop in the ukraine and somebody creates a cloud of space debris now you have to turn that satellite away from what you were looking at and move it in, in just rudimentary terms here move yeah. it uh, and not be able to see what you need to see, but then avoid the space junk. And some might say, well, hey, wait a minute, that sounds nefarious, uh, that if you're yeah. doing it in those manners, that's uh, that might not be on the up and up with, uh, with what you're at least portraying that you're doing. Is that where we're at today? Uh, yes, it's nefarious. It's unfortunately politically, in, uh, or it's unfortunately, I should say, legally speaking, not yet completely prohibited. That's 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 part of the problem. But it is politically speaking less and less uh, uh, acceptable. But that doesn't mean that countries stop doing it. But the interesting thing, and that's the one element here which gives me a little bit of hope is that space junk doesn't discriminate so you may sh shoot down your own satellite and create a lot of extra fragments but those fragments may also come back to haunt you and, and a very uh, to the point example was when the russians last december uh, blew up one of their own satellites again to show their muscle that was still before the war in ukraine and uh, part of the problem there was that some of the debris tended to come too close to the International Space Station for comfort. And there are procedures on, on board of the International Space Station if a certain big piece of space junk comes too close for comfort, the astronauts scramble in whatever vehicle is attached to the space station at that moment so that if something really hits, they can immediately take off and, and get home. And the interesting thing is there were three Russian cosmonauts on board of the International Space Station because at that time, Russia was still part of the game. They're now getting out of it, which is a different story. But that time, there were still three Russian cosmonauts. So they also, by shooting their own satellite, endangered the lives of their own three cosmonauts. And, and that tells me, because we're all in this together, that there is at least a glimmer of hope that the major countries will start thinking, hey, wait a minute, we should stop somewhere, because if, if one does it and the other then does it to retaliate and then the third one does it, everyone suffers. And the more we do it, the more we suffer. But we are clearly not there yet. And certainly in legal terms, there is not any clear-cut prohibition to, to, to do these nefarious things. I was just thinking before I started uh, this interview uh, with you, Doctor, how, how it must be uh, for you to draw inspiration uh, in this realm that you've decided to study. And I, I was thinking back to the last time 
someone even thought in these pioneering terms. It must have been the lawyers who sat around and discussed maritime law uh, back God knows when. Uh, but but you are embarking on on something that is just equally uh, equally as grand and 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 holds the consequences uh, that those that those would have you know those, those early lawyers in maritime law would have had. What do you think about at night when you're lying there well, thinking about these problems? <laughs> I mean, well, I don't le- I don't lose a night of sleep. I should I should be honest on that, and and maybe that's my lawyer's attitude. Um, trying to find solutions, but it is a, a, a worrying problem for sure, and momentarily it's getting worse. Um, I'm not sure whether the first maritime lawyers were losing nights of sleep over their rules. I'm not impartial, but I think space law is much more important than maritime law, partly because space is becoming much more important. And as I pointed out earlier, it's a global concern. Uh, maritime law still can. Uh, limit itself in many cases to one particular area where a few countries are are interested or are involved. I think about the disputes about the South Chinese Sea between China and Taiwan and, and the United States, things like that. What happens in space is of importance to all of humankind. And and you, you cannot always say that about maritime law. Again, I, of course, I'm not impartial being a space lawyer, but uh, rather than lying awake at night, I'm indeed, as you say, stimulated to do my best to help solve these problems. And uh, we should be, you know, realistic as a law professor. Uh, at best, you have a second-hand influence. Uh, you can talk to the real power brokers, uh, try to make clear what they would ultimately gain by clear-cut rules, uh, even though they might at first instance think, well, any rule that prohibits me from doing something or that limits me from doing something is bad for me. But if they realize that it would also limit or prohibit the same things from a couple of other countries, the, the, you know, it might turn the other way. So, so that's the kind of task I see myself uh, undertaking. And, and as a professor, again, I teach the new generation, who uh, people who are, for example, now building up the U.S. Space Force. And I just hope that they take some of what they what we discussed in class on what space law is and where it should go and, and, and what the key elements are and how you create some some development, progressive development there, that they take that with them and once they are in positions of power, again in this example in the US Space Force, are able to at least bend it partly in the right direction. Luckily, I should say I'm not only professor of space law, I also have my, my own consultancy company. And that, of course, also allows me to, at, a, at one arm distance, you know, get involved because governments or intergovernmental organizations sometimes ask for opinions and advices. And, you know, they pay for it. So what they do with the advice is ultimately their own choosing. But I'm always hopeful that at least parts of what I'm saying them, what I'm telling them, are, are being picked up and then translated, hopefully, into policies and maybe law. I was really excited when I got to send an email to an email address at Black Holes, that, uh, <laughs> the name of your consulting company, which I just think is great. Talk to me about about writing law, because this is so fascinating to me. When I read some of the early founding fathers here in America, and we, we, we see some of the Constitution uh, verbiage and, and wording, it always has this openness 
to it. Yeah. This, uh, this sense yeah. that they could see into the future and, and know exactly what we were dealing with. When you're writing law like this or developing policy, how do you how do you go about it? What are the rules of the road? If you could just impart a few uh, maybe uh, key points to us uh, in thinking this way, because I think it's just fascinating uh, what yeah. you're doing right well, now. Well, uh, a warning at the outset for for any lawyer listening: this is a totally different ball game than U.S. law. It's not common law; it's largely written law plus a bit of customary law, and it's essentially in most cases originally international law uh, because space is an international arena um, like the high seas that's probably also where your uh, where your reference to the, the law to maritime law comes from because in, in many cases we do refer to similar concepts on the high seas which is also belonging to all of humankind and are open for all peaceful nations and things like that that, that same principle applies to outer space as well so it means that um, we uh, we have to be uh, in an international setting agree on what we do. There's no single country which can call the tune and say, hey, this is how it's going to work in outer space. And if somebody doesn't comply with that, I'm going to take my, my, my retaliatory or, or, or legal action. So that we're all in this together. And that's probably the most important thing to understand about space law, that if we really want to make progress, at least the key spacefaring nations, the big ones, need to come to some sort of uh, an understanding and agreement about how it works. Because, you know, smaller countries um, like my own country, the Netherlands, or or take African countries, they may have the most beautiful ideas about how space law should look like. But if the United States, Russia, China, India, big Western European countries and Japan don't play ball, you don't get anywhere because international law is basically made by the states. And then certainly in an area like outer space, in particular by the leading spacefaring states, because they know what it is to op- operate in outer space. And they have the power, at least to a certain extent, to ignore proposed rules which they you know, either don't like or don't, don't think are fit or appropriate. What are we doing well right now? Uh, when it comes in, to space, in space law. law. Yeah, what are we um, doing right? Are we doing anything right? Yeah, we're doing something right. And this uh, one thing is goes in particular in the area that, that started this conversation of space junk. I, I started by saying that at the international level, there is unfortunately no, um, no uh, international rule yet either prohibiting someone to create space debris or requiring someone to clear out their own junk. That is what we're working on. But the good thing that we see happening is that, see, that some countries, the United States, United Kingdom and France, to name a few, are now taking the lead and say, okay, we're not, we don't, we cannot afford to wait until everyone plays ball. We have to start working on it now. Because if we only do that once everyone is in the same ballpark, then we are too late and, uh, and the skies are full of junk. So what they do is on the national level, A, have their space op- agencies like NASA for the U.S., operate already along principles. It's not strictly speaking law, but if it works, that's fine too. So NASA is is no longer just sending stuff out there and not caring what happens in terms of the risk of space debris. So they, they think about what are we going to do if we run out of fuel? Are we able to bring that satellite uh, safely into the atmosphere where it then will burn? Or are we able to park it up higher up in a graveyard orbit where it will do no harm? 
And one of the good things that we're doing right now is also, or those countries are doing right now, is that they also are going to impose upon their national operators who need a license to go into space in the first place to come as part of the licensing process to come forward with plans of what, what we're going to do. So if SpaceX, Elon Musk, wants to launch something, he needs a launch license from the Federal Aviation Authority, the Office of Commercial Space Transportation, to be exact. Uh, and in the licensing process, SpaceX has to tell the FAA, well, if something goes wrong, here are the plan B and plan C to avoid uh, major parts of space debris uh, of, of continuing to circle in orbit. And this is what we're going to do if the satellite is close to the end of its lifetime. We, we, we use the last bit of fuel to boost it into a safe graveyard. And if they don't come up with plans for for handling these space junk risks, then the FAA might refuse them a license. So, so that's something we're doing well. Uh, we're doing well in spite of the fact that you could also argue, well, we actually disadvantage, at least in the short run, our own commercial industry because we impose higher requirements upon those than maybe the Russians and the Chinese do. I say in the short run because I think in the long run those countries will have to, uh, to follow suit. And then you have the advantage as an industry that you already started earlier to think about these mitigation measures, so you have a technological advantage. It's, it's the same as with the environment on Earth. It just happens 20 years later in space. I wanted to talk about some of the cleanup efforts. Uh, is there is there one in particular that stands out? Because reading some of this stuff is literally uh, reading science fiction. I mean, some of the ideas are so far out there and just incredible. Uh, is there one that stands out uh, in your mind at the moment as far as no, the solution? No, we, we don't. We don't have the, the golden egg yet. We don't have the, 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 the perfect solution. And maybe we need to uh, to, to, to not... Uh, tie ourselves to one single solution because for different situations, different options may be the best. But what we do see is a lot of experimenting going on. Japan, Europe, United States have already sent uh, test uh, vehicles in outer space and, and are testing different technologies. Uh, one is uh, harpooning, uh, that you uh, launch a harpoon into a dead space object which is run out of control, thereby then can tug it down into the atmosphere and everything burns, or you can attach a solar sail to it, which sort of uh, lowers the speed, which then also allows the gravity of the Earth to draw it back into the atmosphere and then it burns. And there are other techniques also like catching things in space, a giant vacuum cleaner. These are currently being tested, and I can't say which one is going to be the, 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 the big one, but again, we may uh, think about using different techniques for different for different operations. If you have a vacuum cleaner, you can probably, you know, clean orbits of all sorts of tinier debris, whereas for one big dead satellite, it may be a better, a better solution to use the harpooning technique. But again, they're all just being tested, because as you can imagine, not only do they cost a lot of money as, as for themselves, but they also carry certain risks. I mean, you don't want to try and harpoon a dead satellite with the result that that, that satellite and your own harpooning entity, a uh, harpooning satellite, crash down on Earth or crash into the space right. station because something goes wrong, right? Right. I could just imagine, uh, you know, what do you do for a living? I'm a satellite harpooner. That's my new, <laughs> that's my new job title. But th this stuff that seems so far-fetched, I mean, it's an incredible physics problem. Uh, just from the layman's perspective, when you look at how fast this stuff is moving, 
and yeah. then what the impact is on on something that is not moving as fast. I mean, it's monumental uh, the it amount is. of energy that is uh, contained uh, in what you're trying to do, and then and then how do you mitigate those risks? It's a fascinating problem, and it's one that I'm sure you've thought a lot about. What got you into space? law to begin with were you a, a science fiction guy uh, or a kid growing up or what, Funny, yeah. where did it come Funny from enough i was not no it was i, I must confess it was a little bit a, a, a matter of chance hmm. i was working at the line university which is still my hometown but i don't work at the university anymore but but 30 years ago at the department of general international law so i dealt with the law of diplomacy maritime law uh, human rights law, international environmental law, laws of warfare and armed conflict, all that stuff. So general international law. And within that department, there was a small institute of air and space law. And at some point, a vacancy for the space law co-director became available. That was like 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago. So I thought, well, I don't know much about it, but it is intriguing. I mean, I may not have been a science fiction buff, but I think everyone as a kid has at some point thought about outer space and the vastness of the universe and where does life come from and, and and stuff like that so i didn't think it was you know something totally disinteresting i just never had gotten around to it and then i got the position and at the time i should say that space law certainly outside of the u.s was indeed very much international and, and very much limited to a small bunch of treaties plus some other stuff so i could relatively quickly you know, get into the discipline. And then as space law started to grow, I could grow with it, so to speak. I think it's fascinating. Uh, and certainly a field of study that mankind is going to have to take seriously uh, for a very, very long time. What do you want people to take away uh, when they have a, a conversation with you? What What is that, that nugget that you want them to hold on to? That space law is not just for fun. Uh, when I, when I, uh, I mean, you can have a lot of funny stories, and we can uh, perhaps use another podcast to regale those. Uh, when I, when I tell people who are, who are, you know, at, at drinks or something like that, or when I enter the U.S. Uh, at immigration, and I tell them that I'm coming to teach in Nebraska space law, the, almost invariably the question is space law. What the heck is that? And then people, either they start laughing or they say, okay, tell me who owns the moon. And, and they think it's one big joke. And then usually if I talk a few minutes with them, they start realizing, well, there may be some jokes around there, but it's still bloody serious too. And, and given the level of dependence that human society increasingly has on what happens in outer space, not just in the security realm, but in the daily realm. I think about GPS, uh, energy grids, banking transfers, uh, all that kind of telecommunications, of course, satellite communications is a multi-billion dollar business. Uh, they start realize that it is important. And then the next step that I wanted, the second part that I want to always add on to that, and let's understand that law can play a helpful role in making sure that the benefits for humanity will be maximized of space activities and the potential pitfalls and the downsides will be minimized. Of course, law is not the only tool, it's certainly not a perfect tool, but it can certainly help.
this is a labor of love, and this is an endeavor uh, sure. for the greater good uh, when it sure. comes to law. And for that, I, I applaud you. And anyone that uh, is interested in studying this, uh, especially here in the United States, uh, the University of Nebraska has become uh, really the, the leading expert uh, in this field of study, and you're at the helm of that. Uh, talk to the prospective uh, student right now uh, who might be looking into something fun. Uh, yeah, well, the first question, and that's a very legitimate question, of course, that students always ask, say, well, I, I would love to do space law, but can I get a job with that? And the good thing is that I think we are currently on a cusp of a new era where, in, in particular in the private sector, uh, think about Elon Musk, Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos and their space tourism ventures. Think about the space mining thing which is becoming big with all the plans to go back to the moon. I think between now and five to ten years, there will be a considerable surge in job opportunities in space law. They will not be the classical uh, you know, uh, attorney or, or litigation jobs. There will be not that much of a need for justices who are experts in space law. Uh, but there will be a major need for legal counsel of companies uh, helping to draft contracts, helping to get through the licensing rules with the US or also in other countries. Uh, there's a lot of international negotiation going on still. There's a, a sub-department of the State Department which deals with that in, in the US and other countries, of course, basically have the same. So the career opportunities are, again, not the classical lawyer opportunities, you won't likely, you know, every other week go to court to sue someone else. Although that may grow gradually as well, but it will be primarily in the advisory legal counsel jobs, the drafting of contracts and agreements. And I think that is, well, I'm of course, again, not impartial, but I think that's probably even more interesting than just suing the hell out of someone else. Yeah. But that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's well, everyone's choice. I think it's great. I, and I think it's a, it's a needed practice uh, that we're going to see more and more of, as you said. Uh, this entire series, we've been focused on teachers. And as we wrap things up, I, I just have to ask, uh, what do you still love about teaching? Well, I have the fortune that the students who do space law come, usually come to it when they have already uh, gone through the, the basic law career. So it's an add-on towards the end of their law studies, which means that they're a little bit older that they're very much interested in the subject. You, you don't find many students who say, oh, I need to fill two credits, so I just you know, blindly picked and chose that one. So they're all very interested. Most of them are very smart people, which means that also as a teacher, it's not a one-way process of me telling them how things are, but I learn a lot, and in particular, since those are the people that in the next 20 years have to you know, take the baton and take everything further, I'm, I'm very interested in that continuous conversation um, and, and, and teaching is, is a key tool in, in you know, getting in that, into that two-way uh, two discussion and preparation of the younger generation for what's to come. Well, I think it's been a fascinating conversation and your work is just equally uh, incredible. Professor Vonderdunk, thanks for being here. You're the world expert. How does that feel to be one of the leading <laughs> world experts on space policy and law from the University there of Nebraska and blackholes.eu? Uh, we'll quick link to your consultant uh, consultancy page there so people can find you there as well. Thanks yeah. for being on History Worth Saving. You're more than welcome. It was a pleasure. You can find out more again about Professor Franz Vanderdunk on his website, which is quick linked into this show story. 
All season long, we're saluting teachers, those who challenge us and who continue to drive even the universe wider and deeper. Thanks for being here. So long for now.